right. Well, it's good to see everybody again this morning. And um, bye, Becky. <laughs> what a blessing it is to have you here. And what a, what a blessing it is to, um, to have Alex come and teach today. I'm excited about this. Um, some of you know, most of you probably know, but if you don't, Alex and Leilani and their girls, Abigail and Rebecca, moved to Missouri from Oregon back in the fall to help plant Community Church. And, uh, but that wasn't the only reason why they came. I think that was a main reason, but another reason that they came is that Alex is exploring uh, a potential call into the ministry. And um, Community Church wants to help him do whatever we can to, um, to recognize that call. And so some of you have heard him teach at our community groups, and it's been fantastic, and it's our privilege to have him come and preach, which I understand is his very first sermon ever right here at Community Church. So, brother, come on up and, and share with us what God has put on your heart. All right. Well... Good morning. <laughs> I'll try to uh, <clears throat> remember to, to speak up here and, and go slow. But uh, t today uh, is a, an exposition, I guess you could say, on Psalm 84. Um, in it, I hope to uncover some truths and applications that may not have been seen otherwise. Uh, but ultimately, uh, my goal is, is to glorify God in this. So hopefully, um, hopefully I do that. Uh, so the title of the psalm is the, the Blessedness of Dwelling in the House of God. Uh, so we'll, if, if, uh, if you want to follow along, we'll be, we'll be going through the whole psalm today. Uh, psalm 84. Uh, so from this title, The Blessedness of Dwelling in the House of God, we can easily decipher that the writer of this psalm sees God's house as lovely. Dwelling in God's house and therefore living and resting in God's presence is the believer's highest delight. And the authors of this psalm are the sons of Korah, uh, but Charles Spurgeon believes that for all intents and purposes, this psalm could have been written by David himself based on Stalin's subject, but that's not what's important. What is important is what the psalm says about dwelling in the house of God and what the writers want to convey to us. So this psalm is an excellent reminder of what it means and looks like to dwell in God's presence. Right? And this psalm is rich with the joy of the Lord and a yearning and longing for his presence. Those of you who have experienced God's presence before, or you can recall a time where you felt like God was maybe like smiling down on you, if that's one way to describe it, uh, will know what I'm talking about. I felt this joy of, of him just, smi it felt like he was smiling down on me. And I, I don't know why, I can't tell you, I, it was when I was in, in college in the parking lot. I, I can't tell you why, but I, it just felt, it felt amazing. And I haven't felt it since, but that doesn't mean that he is not delighted in me. Um, there's a great quote from the movie Chariots of Fire, uh, which is based on the true life story of Eric Little. And if you don't know this story, I would, I would encourage you to watch the movie. It's pretty interesting. But for those who may not be familiar with Eric Little, uh, he was an Olympic runner for the UK during the 1924 Olympic Games in Paris. 
he went on to become a missionary in China. Uh, that was his, his ultimate uh, calling in life. But for the time being, he was an Olympic runner and he enjoyed running. Uh, sparing you all the details, there's actually a point in the movie where he says, when I run, I feel his pleasure. And I thought that was a really encapsulated this, this psalm perfectly. You know, how beautiful is that? We, we, as we'll see, the writer of Psalm 84 feels his pleasure when he enters God's house. So let's begin. Verse 1. Verse 1 says, How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. And notice how the psalmist did not know how lovely the Lord's tabernacle was, only that it was lovely. Right? The Hebrew word here used to describe uh, God's tabernacle is also used to describe something as well-beloved or amiable. So the, the psalmist finds the strongest way he knows how of describing his deep love for God's house, and yet such descriptions fall so utterly short of describing God's true presence. And such inexpressible descriptions of God's presence is a testament to how good our God really is. It's a testament to the wonder of God and how sweet and lovely he truly is. No amount of words can or will describe the beauty of our God. We fall so embarrassingly short of a true and accurate de de description of who God is, but thank God that we do. Thank God that we can't describe him, because if we could, then he probably isn't God. And that's how I always see it. You may not understand God all the time, but that's okay, because he's God. <laughs> um... But thank goodness he is God, and there's none like him above or beneath. Right, so from the psalmist's opening statement, how lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts, we can take some advice. The tabernacle was a picture of God's presence among his people. So while the psalmist here is talking about the literal tabernacle of God, we can also liken it to the fellowship of fellow believers. And it goes without saying that any time a group of believers uh, gather together, God is going to be present among them. Therefore, believers love to see and be a part of the gathering of other believers because it means that God is in their midst. And this is kind of the, the application that we can take from this verse, verse 1. You know, the psalmist loved every bit of the tabernacle, every detail, every square footage, because that was where God was. That's where God dwelt. And in the same way, we may say, how lovely is the gathering of your people, O Lord, because that is where he dwells. So continuing with this thought, the psalmist is moved with emotion, for he says in verse 2, my soul longs, yes, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. And reminiscent of Psalm 42, the psalmist's feeling to meet with God was insatiable. What is interesting about this verse, though, is that in this instance, his flesh agrees with his spirit in desiring to meet with God. And if you've been a participant of the spiritual race for any amount of time, you know that your flesh and your spirit do not agree. They're constantly at odds with one another. There's an invisible war that rages all around us. So to hear that the author's flesh and his spirit are in agreement is kind of interesting right it's kind of unusual to hear that but this goes to show that it is possible but how how is it possible that his flesh yearns for what his spirit does 
Well, Paul says in Galatians 5.16, I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. David Guzik notes that walking in the spirit means that the Holy Spirit lives in you. Second, it means to be open and sensitive to the influence of the Holy Spirit. And third, it means to pattern your life after the influence of the Holy Spirit. Paul also states in Romans 8, 5 through 6, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So we all have a sinful nature that does not want what God wants. Right, but this, however, doesn't give us a license to just throw up our hands in defeat and succumb to our sinful desires and say, well, I, oh well. Right. God is the one who changes hearts and gives us the ability to run away from temptation and run straight to him, but our responsibility needs to be to run to him. Our responsibility is to desire after God and do what we can to run towards him with all of our might. He provides a path of escape, and we must run in that path. And since we have been set free from the law of sin and death, we now have a choice to choose God over sin. We will never be sinless this side of eternity, but we can sin less with each passing day. So then, this verse is a reminder that we still have a choice to follow God, so are we? The psalmist just feels an overwhelming sense and deep-seated desire to be with his God in his presence. And as Charles Spurgeon has described, he had a holy lovesickness upon him. And we, must, we as Christians must yearn and longingly desire God's presence in our lives. We can experience his presence by, one, purposefully meeting with him in personal devotions and prayer, two, obeying his call on our life, and three, fellowshipping with other believers both in church and in just doing life together. Then we may experience just how lovely God's presence is in our lives. Verse 3 is, is an interesting verse and one that might not be understood at face value. Uh, but digging deeper, it is another testament to the sons of Korah's deep passion for the house of God. It says, Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. And what they're desiring is a place to, I'm sorry, what they are desiring is a place to call home somewhere anywhere in God's tabernacle, right? It doesn't matter if it's high up in, the, in the, the cellars, up on the roof, or down below. They just, they want to be, they want to call somewhere in God's tabernacle home, right? They would rather dwell somewhere inside of God's house than going to God's house. One is permanent and the other is temporary. Matthew Henry states that the writer envies the happiness of these, which are the birds, and would gladly change places with them. As you can see, he, he loves God's house so much, he just wants to be somewhere in it. He didn't care where. So, do we have that same desire to be in God's presence as the sons of Korah do? And that's a little bit convicting. This stands as a nice transition to verse 4, which says, Blessed are those who dwell in your house, for they will still be praising you. Our praise is just going to come out of us if we're in God's presence. 
When we get to heaven, there will be singing and music and praise like you've never heard before. So start now. Practice now. Right? Psalm 147.1 says, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praise to our God, for it is pleasant and praise is beautiful. Also, Psalm 33.1 says, Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. A realization of that which is beautiful will result in beautiful praise. We will never cease to praise God for all that he has done, and we will delight in doing so if we are abiding in him. Praising God will make us happy because we are recognizing all the blessings and goodness that he bestows upon us and how unworthy we are to receive them. So here, after verse 4, we see our first mandatory pause and meditation of the psalm and what has been said so far, as is evidenced by the Selah, which, to borrow uh, from my pastor in Hawaii, it also means to think about it. You can, it can be translated to think about that. Think about what has been said so far. Meditate on that. Think about it. Chew on it. All right, so let's recap. Verses 1 through 4. God's house is so lovely, so magnificent, because of the presence of Yahweh, that the author longs to be there with every fiber of his being. His desire is so strong that he wishes he was a critter who has made the tabernacle their home just so that he can constantly be in God's beautiful presence. He then gives a blessing to those who do dwell in his his lovely presence and recognizes that they will offer up sweet music to his ears as a result. That's verses 1 through 4. Verse 5, the psalmist makes a very interesting admittance here. He says, Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. He mentions pilgrimage. Right? He knows he cannot physically dwell in God's tabernacle, for God is holy and he is not. So he settles for pilgrimage. And remember, the psalmist here is talking about the physical tabernacle of God. So, nobody, not even the priests, were allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies but for once a year. Right? So, he knows he cannot physically dwell in God's presence. So, he settles, quote-unquote, for pilgrimage, for making his yearly or monthly or however long it was that they needed to go to God's tabernacle. This has application for us even today. As Christians, we know that this earth is not our home. We are just pilgrims passing through, to quote singer-songwriter Stephen Curtis Chapman. Right? We're just pilgrims passing through. So the psalmist recognizes that the man who finds his strength and puts his trust in God will be blessed as he makes his pilgrimage to God's house. But notice that this blessing is exclusive. This is not for everyone. It is only for those whose heart is right. Charles Spurgeon says that the author speaks only of those who heartily attend to the sacred festivals. The blessedness of sacred worship belongs not to half-hearted, listless worshipers, but to those who throw all of their energies into it. And that is why the man who finds his strength in God will be blessed. He is willingly and cheerfully giving himself to God. This reminds me of what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 9-7 when he said, God loves a cheerful giver. 
again, Spurgeon, uh, notes that a company of pilgrims who had left their hearts at home would be no better than a caravan of carcasses, quite unfit to blend with living saints and adoring the living God. I'll read that again. <clears throat> a company of pilgrims who had left their hearts at home would be no better than a caravan of carcasses, quite unfit to blend with the living saints and adoring the living God. This goes to show how important our heart attitude is when approaching God's presence. Let me clarify something, though. It is possible for us to come to church with the wrong heart attitude and leave with the right heart attitude. I say that because worship and the word are more than capable of changing our hearts if we let it. But how much better would it be for us if we came with our hearts already prepared? I am not advocating in any way for you to just come to church with the worst of attitudes and, and, and expect or assume that you're going to leave better than you were before because we still have a choice to make. But how much better would it be for us to come already prepared, ready and, listen, and waiting to hear God and be in his presence? Right? I think we would get more out of it that way. And this doesn't have to deal with just coming to church on Sundays. This is also in your, in your quiet times. Whenever you spend time with God, making sure your heart is right to come before him because I believe we will get more out of it that way. We're, we're ready. We want to come and get something out of it, right? We want to come and praise God and worship him for all that he has done, and we want to wait and see what he is going to teach us in that, that time of, of gathering and being in his presence, right? And, and I'm guilty for not having the right heart or sometimes, you know, not preparing my heart properly or fully before God all the time. I'm sure we're all guilty of that at some point or another. But this is why it's a good reminder for us to check our hearts when we come before God. And like I said, it doesn't have to be on a Sunday or before church, just anytime you come in God's presence. Whenever we become, whenever we come before God, our hearts need a check. And so following the theme of pilgrimage, verse 6 says, As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The rain also covers it with pools. And one interpretation of this verse is that there was a literal valley on the way up to Jerusalem named Baca that the pilgrims had to cross. Right? It, it, was, it, it could have been a hard valley or a dreary valley or, or both, but the point is that it was marked with challenges. So that's one interpretation. Another one is that the psalmist could be using an illustration to make his point. And whether it's one of those or not, or something else, the point is that in this life we'll have tribulation. Jesus even told us that. Right? He said, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. That was in John 16, 33. Right, but what does the second part of this verse say? You'll have challenges, right? But these pilgrims make the valley a spring. So even when they go through hard times, the pilgrim looks forward to the end result, which is communion with God and fellowship with him and fellowship with other believers in God's eternal presence. So going to their, their, their timeline, if you will, these pilgrims are going up to Jerusalem to worship God, right? And even though they face challenges, to them it doesn't matter because they're going up to Jerusalem to worship God and be in his presence, so it doesn't matter. For us, 
in this life will have tribulation, but we know heaven is our end goal. And that should overcome any challenges that we face, drown out. I'm not, gonna, I'm not saying it's not going to be painful, but we look ahead. We look at the end result. And we, we I guess you could say, take it all in stride. Um, this verse gives us the reality and then the application. They forget the trial, the pilgrims, in light of their coming hope. Right? They get through the trial without letting the trial get to them. Charles Spurgeon said, There are joys of pilgrimage which make men forget the discomforts of the road. So if nothing else, the expectation of heaven alone can and should drown out the sorrows for the Christian. Heaven itself, being in God's beautiful presence, as this psalm is all about, should drown out our sorrows. The part about the rain also covers it with pools uh, in that verse is a testament to God's divine provision. Where all else fails and we cannot find repose anywhere, God comes in and gives us what we need. He provides for his children. He is a good and loving father. So that's another good reminder for us that even in the midst of trials, he's providing. Whether I, I'm not going to say what he's providing for you specifically because he could provide a whole host of things, but recognize that he is providing for you in these trials and tribulations and always, honestly. Uh, an excellent example of this is found elsewhere in Scripture. So this, this whole, this, this verse, can, uh, an example of this verse can be found elsewhere in Scripture. The Bible gives us a brief history of one of Israel's finest leaders in a book named after him. Nehemiah was a man of God who worked within the Persian government at the, end, or at the time of Israel's return back to their land. So, in fact, you know, Nehemiah was instrumental in getting Israel back to Israel. But Nehemiah had a difficult task, and that was rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And obviously to protect against future attack. Uh, Nehemiah faced opposition both from within and without, but he sought God and God provided. His trials were large, but his goal and his God, most importantly, were larger. And he was able to lead Israel to see the completion of Jerusalem's walls. All this to say, keep your eyes and heart focused and steadfast upon him and he will provide. Verse 7 says, they go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. Again, Spurgeon has excellent insight into this verse. He says, we grow as we advance if heaven be our goal. As the pilgrim gets closer and closer to his destination, he becomes stronger and more joyous. The people that he meets along the way also encourage him, and he encourages them, so that everyone's soul becomes stronger and more expectant. In Charles Spurgeon's commentary, he basically says that meeting just to meet or, or to be present in religious gatherings is not enough, and he called for a more sincere heart towards fellowshipping together. This was convicting to me because, I mean, I enjoy meeting and fellowshipping with everybody. I, I consider myself kind of outgoing, right? And, and I, the reason why this was kind of convicting was because I kind of, it, I think I feel like I, I treat Sundays most of the time as kind of like social hour, right? I'm coming, meet my friends, everybody's going to be here, I'm going to talk, have fun, fellowship, whatever. And yeah, there's nothing wrong with that, 
there's nothing wrong with fellowshipping and socializing and meeting with friends and family. You know, God wants us to be happy in his presence. But we must recognize the real reason why we meet. It's not social hour, right? The real reason is to be in his presence. Again, it's, it's all following the theme of this psalm of the blessedness of dwelling in God's house. We would do better if we realized that God's presence was where the gathering of saints took place and not just the chance for another social get-together. Instead of meeting for the sake of meeting, or for other reasons, we should be desiring to meet with one another in order to be in the presence of God. And that's how I can personally apply verse 7 to my life. Verse 8 is kind of a sort of finishing touch to the second movement of this psalm. It says, O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. So verses 5 through 7 talked about the blessedness of pilgrimage and putting one's trust and hope in God. And we'll face trials, but our expectation of God's presence trumps all else. At least it should. In verse 8, the psalmist makes that his prayer and earnestly entreats God to hear this prayer of his. He wants to be counted among those who are considered pilgrims and deeply desires his God. We can and should make this desire our prayer too. Once again, we are called to think about it. The verses 9 through 12 make up the last movement of this psalm. The psalmist turns his focus back to the original thought, and that was the beauty of God's tabernacle. Right now, he is having, you could say, like a mountaintop experience. After all this, he's... he's feeling God's presence, and he's overjoyed. He's on the mountaintop. There's nothing that can bring him down at this point. Right, how many of you have had that, these mountaintop experiences? The best that the psalmist can do in, in his situation is simply praise God, and we see that in verse 9. It's pretty common for humanity to cry out to God during their low points, which makes sense. How many of us praise and worship God when things are going great? Let this be a lesson to us. Just because we are on the mountain does not mean we do not need to worship God. This is a reminder that we must always be praising and worshiping God, no matter our circumstances. And the psalmist gives the credit to God because he acknowledges that God is his shield. <clears throat> now we get to verse 10. It says, For a day in your courts are better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. I'm sure you've all heard the worship song, Better Is One Day. It's pretty popular, pretty common. Without knowing the backstory of this song, though, I can confidently say that this verse was the inspiration behind that song because the song and the psalm almost match identically. In the chorus, the song says, Better is one day in your courts, better is one day in your house, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. And here, the psalmist would just be happy if his job was to be the doorkeeper. If he could just open and close God's house, that would be, that would be perfect, the ideal for him. And it's kind of interesting to see this transition, too, because at first he wants to be there permanently. Then he wants to be an animal or, or take the place of an animal who has made God's home his, or God's house his home, right? So he goes from wanting to be physically in God's house, knowing that he can't do that because 
he is not holy. So then, you know, quote, settling for being on the outside looking in, just anywhere that God's presence can be felt is what he wants. He doesn't care where it is. And, you know, remember when the psalmist longed for a place to live inside the tabernacle? Like I said, well, now he's just satisfied to be outside the door. This psalmist will take whatever he can get. He just wants to feel God's presence. David Jeremiah says, If the psalmist had only one day to live, he would rather be the lowly doorkeeper in the house of God than to enjoy all the wealth and luxury of evil. Pay attention to this part. He would rather be found serving the Lord than himself. What a desire. No wonder his flesh agreed with his spirit about longing for God. Right? He denied his wants and desires to serve God and not himself. The world has very flashy things. The world will reject you and abandon you when it is convenient for them. Our desire for God and his will should be what takes priority in our hearts. We must kneel in humility before God, not throw ourselves carelessly before men. We must choose God above all else. Choose God first. Choose God first. In verse 11, the psalmist kind of gives us a reason as to why he chooses God first. He says, for the Lord God, I'm sorry. He says, yeah, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Again, he goes back to the shield imagery that we saw in verse 9. Uh, to us, this may not mean anything, but in ancient warfare, a shield was very important. A shield protected you in battle. It was both an offensive and defensive weapon. And a warrior would be out of his mind to go into battle without a shield. One of my favorite examples of a modern shield is Israel's Iron Dome and our very own missile defense. Both are extraordinary pieces of technology. Uh, the Iron Dome, for example, is highly effective to intercept incoming enemy missiles in midair. I don't know how that works, but it does. And it's effective in doing it. Right, but if the psalmist were alive today, he would say that Yahweh is better than the Iron Dome. He also notes that God is a sun. What does a sun do? A sun does multiple things, right? It provides warmth and light. God provides him with insight and direction and will also protect him on his journey. And this is why he would rather be affiliated with God than be affiliated with the world. The world may seem like your friend, but like I said earlier, it'll forsake you when it's convenient for them. Not so with our God. And the next part of this verse reminds us that those who walk uprightly will receive good things. Do not confuse this for the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Because the promise here is for those who walk uprightly. What does it mean to walk uprightly? It means someone who is walking according to God's will. Someone who walks with God and is in his presence. Someone in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. Someone in whom God is well pleased. Right? What a promise. I, I want God to be well pleased with me, so that should motivate me to do what pleases God. And that's the application that we have here in verse 11. We are sinners, but God's kindness should lead us to repentance. 
This is echoed in Romans 2, 4, where Paul says, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Right? God will bless our obedience to him, whatever that blessing looks like. What should not be done is assume what that blessing should be. We shouldn't concern ourselves with how God is going to bless us. We should concern ourselves with how am I obeying God? How am I living my life to please him? The psalmist doesn't say obey God and he will bless you with lots of money or obey God and tell him how you want to be blessed. And that's, that's the evil health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that we see. It's all about me. Just know that when you obey God, you will be blessed. Again, don't worry about what the blessing looks like. Obey God, you'll be blessed for it, and then thank him for his blessings. Lastly, we have verse 12. And this is like a summary of the whole psalm because the psalmist says, Blessed is the man who trusts in you. This in itself is an application because we are reminded that we are so blessed when we put our trust in God. So to recap, <clears throat> like the psalmist, we too can enjoy and crave the presence of God to, to the point of obsession. On, and honestly, to the point of obsession seems pretty high to me, but that's really how it should be, to the point of obsession. I'm obviously not there yet, <laughs> but it's okay. We're working on it. Just simply being in God's presence will motivate us to do things that pleases him because we love him and we want to do things that please him. As a result, we will experience blessings innumerable because our God is a good and loving father who loves to bless his children. His warm presence and goodness will overflow his children. And this in turn will be a powerful testimony to a world that is dark and cold. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for your presence. We, we want to delight in your presence and in your house. Um, I know you may not have a physical brick-and-mortar house here on earth like the tabernacle represented, but we still, we, we still can be in your presence, whether that's in personal devotion with you or in the fellowship of other believers. We, we, we love your presence, and we want to delight in it. We want to feel you here. We pray that you would, we would also choose you first above all else. It's, it, it, uh, <laughs> it can be hard sometimes where we are tempted, and you know that, but you also have provided a way of escape. And so we pray that we would choose that, choose you above all else. And we thank you for your kindness, for giving us the ability to love you, and, and that you have made it possible for us as sinners to dwell in your presence. We don't deserve that. And like we sang earlier, you know, we'll never know how much it cost to see our sin upon that cross. But we thank you that you, you, you paid our debt. And, and we welcome you here. We, we desire and long to be in your presence. And, and we pray that you would be reflected in our lives uh, to this world that is getting darker by the second. Just tumbling down into immortality. Or in, I should say in, in, in immorality. So, Lord, we, we thank you, and uh, we pray that uh, you would be with us and in our midst. In, in Jesus' name, amen.